We are going to take a look at the greatness of our God this morning as we continue our study in Judges. We're in Judges chapter 5. I've titled this message, A Very Weird Praise Song. Um, There's a need for a song to demonstrate beauty as well as truth. Um, I'm wholly unqualified here because I am not an artist, I'm not a musician, I'm not a singer, but I can appreciate it and know that there are some ways in which music and art and the arts can touch our souls in ways that the straight telling of a story or of the truth doesn't. How many of you have been comforted in time of trouble by a particular song that you have been listening to? Yeah, yeah, songs do that for us, right? And so what we have in Judges is in chapter 4, a description of events, and in chapter 5, a song that sings about those events. This is not uncommon in the Bible. For example, in Exodus 14, we have the exodus of the people through the Red Sea and all of the Egyptian army drowning following the closing of the waters of the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, Miriam sings a song of praise for that triumph. So the event and then the song. And here we have the event, chapter 4, and now the song here in chapter 5. Chapter 4 has described everything from the standpoint of human action. So you'll see very little of the name of God or the Lord in chapter 4. In chapter 5, God is behind it all. And for those of you boys and girls who are joining with us today, we're so glad that you're joining us for the summer. I want to share with you, here's the point of where we're going today. As worshipers, it is better to participate in God's work, even if we mess up, than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. As worshipers, it is better to participate in God's work, even if we mess up, than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. We live in an age where people want to say, I don't want to get involved. That's not just true of believers, that's just true of people. We look at some, well, I'm not going to get involved. But particularly in the church, we see this happening, don't we? Where even in uh, some of the ways in which uh, we structure things, there's a lot of ways in which uh, it can be a challenge to just watch what's going on rather than to participate. There was an old football coach at the University of Oklahoma who gave a pretty good definition of football. He said it was 22 men in desperate need of rest being watched by 50,000 people in desperate need of exercise. And I think that that's sometimes where we go and we are afraid to get engaged in the mission that God has given us of seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ by being rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ, and making disciples. We 
are fearful of that and we shrink back from it. And the point of this passage is, as worshipers, it is better to participate in God's work, even if we mess up, than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. Um, when I was a student at the University of Illinois, I was in the dorm and on a, in a r- ice storm. It was a really bad ice storm, so everything was just coated in ice. And there were some guys several doors down who um, were studying their beer more than they were their books that night. And they gave this guy a challenge to step out on the ledge and make his way outside and then come back in. So he steps out on the ledge, and then the guys shut the, shut the window and started laughing at him out there. Well, he doesn't know what to do, so he kind of gingerly goes down to the next door, which was, uh, the room was, uh, the, guy, the occupier of that room was kind of, a, kind of a wimpy fella, let's just say. And he knocks on the window, let me in. The guy looks up and he goes, I don't want to get involved. Can you imagine? Now, he made it down to the next window and got in, but I don't want to get involved. So often, that is how people respond to challenging and difficult times. And so, as we make our way through Judges, be looking at this. As worshipers, it's better to participate in God's work, even if we mess up, than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, Judges chapter 5? I'll read verses 1 through 11 uh, now, and then we'll read the rest of it as we go along. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Please have a seat. In these first three verses, we see praise 
four and two leaders, but also four and two followers. In verse one, Deborah and Barak join in a song that is now 3,000 years old. It's an ancient song to us. It was brand new to them, and they are singing. What do they sing? In verse two, they sing, it's praiseworthy when leaders lead. It's praiseworthy when leaders lead. Do you see it? That the leaders took the lead in Israel, bless the Lord. We live in a day where there are a lot of leadership positions and very few people actually leading. There's several reasons for that. One is that it's hard to lead. Another one is that when someone pops their head up in leadership and tries to do something, once in a while they aren't perfect in their leadership. And what happens then? Criticism, rightly or wrongly, comes and it causes people to maybe shrink back. And that was what was happening in the days of the judges. Do you remember what happened in chapter 4? Deborah is, is judging Israel down in the central highlands and Barak from way up north is called by Deborah to come down and talk to him about what's going on up there. And she says, go up and you can fight these guys and beat them. And Barak says, well, if, if you go, I'll go. But if you don't, I'm, I'm not going. There's a, a little bit of a hesitancy about leadership. And so when the whole thing is said and done and the victory is had, what do they praise? They praise that leaders have led. Bless the Lord. But not only that, it's praiseworthy when people follow. Look at the second line of verse 2. That the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. These are remarkable things that leaders actually led, that people actually followed. They offered themselves willingly at the service of their leaders to engage in this battle against Sisera and his 900 iron chariots. The Lord is blessed by these remarkable things of leaders leading and people following. He's blessed by it. These are things that we sometimes take for granted They are often unthinkingly expected. They are often surprisingly rejected. And all too rarely, joyously celebrated. When was the last time you celebrated that leaders led and that people followed? Deborah and Barak join in this song for this. Who are these kings and princes in verse 3? Well, they must be the enemies of Israel because Israel had no king. And notice the focus is to the Lord I will sing. To the Lord I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's the focus of the worship. And they want those kings and princes to know that song and to know that God. In verses 4 and 11, 4 through 11, we have a praise for the preparation of hard times and praise for the pain of hard times. Most often, we want to avoid hard times, don't we? We don't want to prepare for them. And when we meet up with them, when we feel the pain of them, we don't, we don't think, oh, thank you, Lord, for this hard time. Give me more of it. No, we don't do that. 
Here there's praise for both the preparation and the pain of the hard times. Let's think about verses 4 and 5 because what Deborah and Barak do in their song is they look way, way back now. In this song, they go back to the Exodus and they're remembering what God did in leading Israel out of Egypt. And they first go to where they were when they first entered the promised land. They entered the land of Edom and how God was good to them when they first got there to Edom before they entered the promised land. And then they reflect on that and they start to think, well, you know, it even goes farther back than that, and they go to Sinai. And so that's why verse 4 says, you marched out from Seir, which is another name for Edom. You marched from the region of Edom. The earth trembled, the heavens dropped, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord. And then they go back even farther, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. This was preparation for hard times. They'd come up from the promised land And the story goes even further back to Mount Sinai. And the common theme is that when the Lord is on the march, things change. The earth trembles, heaven drops, clouds pour rain, mountains quake. So that's a rehearsal of what had happened in the distant past. Now verses 6 and 7 talks about what had happened in the recent past a description of the pain of the hard times of oppression under Jabin, king of Hatsor, and his general Sisera. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, that's the judge from chapter 3, verse 31. In the days of Jael, she's the woman who was famous with the tent peg last week. But it says, in those days, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. What's that mean? Do you remember how I talked to you last week about those international highways of trade? Remember the map? Those international highways of trade completely stopped as far as Israel was concerned. Highways were abandoned. They had no trade. Instead, they're going on the little tiny byways in order to stay safe from Sisera and his army. It goes on to say the village populations died out. Villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be. Why would village populations die out? The reason is that people couldn't live out in the open. In a village, you don't have walls around your village. And so these marauding armies of Sisera could come at any time. So what happened to the villages in Israel? They just abandoned them and people lived in hiding, like in caves, or they went to fortified cities. That was the only two places you could go. Villages just died out. People couldn't live in the open. Until I arose, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. The caring concern that Deborah has for her people. She doesn't have 900 chariots. She doesn't have the equipment or the wherewithal to accomplish this work. But here's what she does know. It is better to participate in God's work, even if we mess up, than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. She knows that much. And so she takes on the position of being a mother to Israel. Carol and I have a a bird feeder in our backyard. And there are 
a couple families of ducks that come to get the gleanings that the birds kind of shake out onto the ground. There's uh, two mother ducks in particular that have ducklings that come up. <clears throat> and it's really fascinating to me to watch how uh, if I go up to the window and I kind of make some movement, that mother duck who's just going about, eat, all of a sudden she's like, attention. You know, I'm trying to look like a duck there. I don't know if I did a very good job of it. But she does that, right? And, and when she does that, all her babies go, you know. And when she, if I make more movement, she starts to head away and those ducks, ducklings just go right under her and off they go. Uh, that was the image because it's just recent in my own circumstance that I have here in this song. Deborah says, things were in a bad way. Villages abandoned. The international trade was gone. The highways abandoned until I came as a mother. And I stood up and I said, I'll, I'll participate with God. I'll join God. Verse 8 gives an explanation for the oppression. Why did all this happen? Why was there oppression? Why was there a Sisera and a Jabin oppressing Israel? Well, it's because Israel chose new gods. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. You choose new gods, guess what? You're going to have trouble. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? That's a question that's an interesting one. It means they didn't have any weapons. <laughs> there wasn't a shield or a spear for one out of every 40,000 in Israel. They didn't have military technology. They didn't have iron. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have anything. And, and what was awesome here is that, in contrast, their enemy had 900 iron chariots. Who could stand against such force as that? Well, Deborah and Barak, notice verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Deborah's singing, my heart goes out to these guys who went out to fight with nothing. They just were ready to participate in God's work even if they were going to mess up, rather than not participate at all. They didn't have military or technological resources, but there's a joy of leaders leading, offering themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord for that. Verses 10 and 11, the praise of the fact of victory leads to the praise of telling the victory to others. They actually won this thing. It's a, it's a miracle. They won over these 900 iron chariots. How, how do they do that? The praise of the fact of that victory leads to the praise of telling the victory to others. And here are the people that they tell. They tell the people that had sat on the sidelines. Tell the victory to those who ride on white donkeys. That means the aristocrats who didn't join with the fight. 
Today we would say, tell of it you who ride in white Lexuses or white BMWs, you know. You who sit on rich carpets, people that feel comfortable. Well, it's not touched me yet, so I guess I'm okay. You who walk by the way. Those who simply are just going to say, I'm just going to go about my business. I'm not going to get involved. Tell it to them. Tell it. And the procession goes. The procession of victory goes down to the gates. The people of the Lord march. The sound of musicians with a, a song to sing. Down march the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord march down for me against the mighty. You see. To the sound, excuse me, go back to verse 11. The sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. And notice the parallelism, parallelism. The righteous triumphs of the Lord are the same thing as the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. The triumphs of the citizen soldier, the villager, who, who really had nothing and yet joined in this fight and they won this great victory. Down to the gates, the people of the Lord march in song. Then there is a praise for the participants with God in his work. Verses 13 through 15, let's read it. Uh, then, um, <clears throat> well, I'll read verse 12 to start with. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Mykir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. What's going on here? What you have is a description in this song of the various tribes of Israel. And which ones participated in the fight? Which ones were willing to say, I'm going to join God in his work, even if we mess up? And which ones said, I'm not going to get involved? Some participated, some did not. Um, those who participated are acknowledged, and those who did not are also identified. Verse 12, awake, awake, Deborah, arise. You can get the sense that the music is swelling in praise of Deborah and Barak, almost a reenactment of the, of the battle here. And here comes the army, verse 13, both noble and people in unity marching down against these mighty foes of Sisera and his 900 iron chariots. And verses 14 to the first half of 15 tells some of the tribes that were involved in the fight. Ephraim, they marched down, following Benjamin with their kinsmen. 
Machir, they march down the commanders. Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. Uh, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah. Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. So you have these tribes and peoples of Israel joining in the fight. But notice beginning in the second half of verse 15, you have also a description of those who did not join. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Notice that that's repeated in verse 16. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. What does that mean? Well, if you look at what's in the middle, they sat still among the sheepfolds. They didn't go out to the fight. To hear, they, they sat still to hear for the whistling of the flocks. They're, they're interested in their own thing, and, and, it, and there's great searchings of heart. Have you ever heard of the paralysis of analysis? You ever heard of that phrase? What was going on in Reuben is they're debating, well, should we go or not? They got 900 chariots there. I don't think we should go. Well, we've got our flocks to take care of. I'm not sure what we should do. Maybe we should go. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should go. Maybe we shouldn't. And they had a thousand committees doing a thousand meetings to decide to do nothing. Great searchings of heart. Verse 18, we rejoin the team that has decided to join the fight. Uh, well, excuse me, uh, verse 17 tells some more tribes that stayed behind. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. They didn't come over to fight. That means the tribes of Gad and Manasseh. Dan, why did he stay with the ships? He's interested in his own stuff. He's not interested in coming to the aid of his brothers. Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Oh, well, it's not, this problem is not near me, so it's not a problem for me, is kind of how Dan and Asher concluded things. And then, verse 18, we return to people who engaged. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. As worshipers, it is better to participate in God's work, even if we mess up, than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. In verse 19 through 23, we have praise for the battle fought. Let me read it. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon, that's the name of a river that flows through the Jezreel Valley. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Uh, this is a praise for the battle fought. The, the song now comes to the fighting. The enemies of Israel were fighting, the, not just the armies of Israel though, but they're fighting the Lord himself, aren't they? Do you see it? How they join in the in the Jezreel Valley by the waters of Megiddo. And 
instead of just fighting against the tribes of Israel, notice verse 20, from heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The stars in the heavens fought? What does that mean? It means that there's a cosmic battle going on here. There's a bigger battle than we imagined. And that God is changing even cosmic forces to bring about some events that happened that leads to Sisera's destruction and defeat. This is not a time of year when, when there's supposed to be rain in the Jezreel Valley. It's not supposed to rain. When you go out to fight, it's in the spring of the year. Even today, by the way, in the Middle East, there's times to fight and there's times not to. And Sisera is wise enough to know when to fight and when not to. He didn't go out in the rainy season. And yet, the rain came. In fact, it came so bad, the torrent Kishon, this river, swept the iron chariots away. Anybody see the pictures of Sugar Creek yesterday? At its worst, you know? Just think about 900 iron chariots going into the Sugar Creek at that moment. Guess what? Iron doesn't float. So here they had this great technological advantage, but they're just all swept away. Just whoosh, all of a sudden the chariots are meaningless in the mud and the flow of this powerful water, this torrent that's coming. God fought from the heavens. Sisera may have 900 iron chariots, but he does not have the stars at his command. The weather conspires against Sisera. His chariots are no good in the mud of the downpour and the water rushing. The God who had turned the sea into dry land at Exodus now turns the dry land into a sea. And it is the Lord who controls the water. That's what Abraham Caravella says in his commentary. Did you know that the Canaanite god, Baal, is the storm god? He holds up his hand. You'll see these little archaeologists find these images all over of uh, Baal. And he's always got his hand up. And the reason is he's got a lightning bolt in his hand. He's going to bring rain and bring fertility to the earth. Baal, the storm god, has failed his people, just as he will fail Israel 250 years later under King Ahab. Verse 22, the loudness of the battle is now enjoined in the song. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Can you imagine, those of you who are percussionists, how much fun you're going to have at the song of Deborah at verse 22? I mean, loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. A crescendoing here. But, verse 23, again, there's one town that refuses to join the fight. They did not come to the help of the Lord against the mighty. It says it twice. They did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Why does not coming to the help of the Lord what does that mean, not to come to the help of the Lord? I mean, he's in charge of the stars and the weather. Why is this a problem? It's a problem not because God needs this town to accomplish the victory over Sisera, right? That is not why. 
Why is this a problem? It is because as worshipers, it is better to participate in God's work even if we mess up than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. Now we come to verses 24 to 31. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. It's more fifth and sixth grade boy stuff here. Between, this is their song. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. <laughs> Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princes, princesses answer Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoiled of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. Here we have a praise for the woman who joined the fight. This woman who participates, J.L., is blessed, most blessed, it says. And we look at it and we go, wait a minute, she's, she's kind of a messy person here. There's all kinds of ethical issues that we could raise. Here's the point. It's better to participate in God's work even if we mess up than never to participate in the mission God gives us. And here we have a non-Israelite, non-warrior, non-male wielding a non-weapon who performs the decisive action that brings the victory. And we think we don't have enough resources? It was a tent peg wielded by a woman, a non-warrior who wasn't even an Israelite that brought Sisera to his demise. Verse 25, he asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds. That's why I think it was yogurt. There's the tent peg and the mallet, the crushing of the enemy. Why is this described with such relish? Seems like you're getting a little too excited here, Deborah, about this stuff. Well, only those who have truly met an enemy and seen that enemy's defeat can understand it. Those are the only people who can understand this. If you've really met an enemy and you've really seen that enemy's defeat, you can understand it. Imagine for a moment that instead of being microscopic, um, coronavirus was as big as a person. Let's just say that, that the virus was that big. <clears throat> Would you drive a tent peg through it? To be done with it? Oh yeah, well, you would, wouldn't you? Let's get rid of that thing, right? Let's get rid of it. There's an enemy here. We want to stop it. The crushing of evil is a delight at all times. And if we shrink it back at this, if we shrink back at that, it is because we do not comprehend the evil, not because 
we are more civilized. And of course, the obvious connection here is to how we handle sin and Satan. Are we content with just merely putting Satan and sin in some kind of peaceful relationship, a category? Or are we ready to do battle? And so we have the song with repeats in verse 27. Some of you uh, don't like some music because it's just too repetitive, you say. Here's one in the Bible that's repetitive. The point of repetition is what? To remind us, to pound home the truth of it, to make it a reminder for us that we don't ever forget it. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he set, fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. I imagine they sang that nine times, right? I mean, they're singing the victory here, right? And it could have been uh, antiphonal, one group saying, between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still, he sank, he fell, he sank, he fell. And then they all say, dead. <laughs> it's the victory of God. The song in verses 28 to 30 now shifts our mind's eye away from the battle to an imagined scene back at Sisera's house. His mother is looking out her window and she's wondering why is Sisera taking so long? This, by the way, of a woman looking out the window is a common motif in the ancient Near East. Let me show you some things. Uh, there's a bunch of ivories that has been found all over the Middle East uh, they're about two inches, two and a half inches by two and a half inches square, made out of ivory carvings, and um, they're of women looking out a window. It's just kind of a common motif. Uh, you see another picture of this in the Bible in 2 Kings 9, where Jezebel is looking out her window, worried about whether or not she'll be able to talk her way out of uh, uh, getting killed. Anyway, here's one from Iraq uh, of a woman looking out a window. Uh, here's another one from the Aramean town of Arslan Tash. Those of you that are C.S. Lewis fans might wonder where did Lewis get the name Aslan and Tash from? Um, my guess it is, it is from this Aramean, it's a city in modern-day Syria, uh, Aramean town of Arslan Tash. Uh, another picture of a woman looking out a window. Here's another one from the same town, Arslan Tash, of a woman looking out a window. And uh, I'll show you one more, but before I do, you need to know that um, in, the, in the ancient Near East, uh, when you look at stuff made by the superpowers, you see refinement and artistry because they've got time to deal with that kind of thing. They've got people that can take the time to become expert at it. When you look at things that are made in Israel, uh, you tend to see things that aren't as craftfully done. They aren't as good. And the reason for that is because they're not the superpower. It's a reminder of Israel's place. It's not because they were great or mighty that God chose them. He chose them because he chose them. So here's one from the city of Samaria in Israel. You see the difference in just the quality of the woman looking out the window. It's just not that it's not as pretty, not as detailed. Okay, so what's happening? Sisera's mother's looking out the window. 
why is his chariot so, taking so long? Why are the hoofbeats of his chariots tarrying? You know, she knows the 900 iron chariots. And her princesses, and indeed she herself, comfort one another that the delay is due to the victory. Now we, as we are singing this song, of course, know better. Sisera lies dead, grotesquely skewered to the ground in Jael's tent. But these women from the other side comfort themselves in the fact that, oh, it's because they've found and are dividing spoil. It's because of the sexual assault that goes with every ancient victory. It's with the gathering of fashionable clothing to bring home to loved ones. And victorious armies, ever since there have been armies, bring home souvenirs, keepsakes, and mementos of their triumph. And here it's dyed and embroidered cloth done by the enemy, which now becomes a souvenir of triumph, at least in Sisera's mother's mind. But she will have no Israelite dyed embroidery. Instead, she will have sackcloth and mourning. The conclusion of the song is a prayer. May all your enemies perish in the same way, Lord. We want all your enemies to perish. And may your friends, that is, friends being the people who participate with God in his work, not the people who stand on the sidelines. May your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Israel is a nation uh, in the Middle East that has one of the highest degrees of what's called insolation in the world, I-N-S-O-L-A-T-I-O-N. It means the intensity of the sun is hotter there than most places on earth. And so, um, the, it's intense. I remember leading a group one time where we're out there in the sun and we're going to talk about these psalms and we're all excited and the, there's a lady that's sitting there and she gets her foot underneath a rock and she complains. She says, well, at least my foot is in the shade. That's the intensity of the sun, right? And may your friends be that intense, rising in his might. So, which are you? An outright enemy? An I don't want to get involved person? Or a person who participates with God in his work? It's better to participate in God's work even if we mess up than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. And the mission that he's given us is to be worshipers, maturing in Christ, being rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ, and making disciples, seeking to share this good news with others. The New Testament has lots of things to say about Christians who say they don't want to get involved. Jesus speaks of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and he says, the guy that buries his talent, he says, you should have invested my money with the bankers, that at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest, so take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten, to everyone who has more will be given, he'll have an abundance, but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of a, a sobering thought, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 3 about uh, no one can lay a foundation other than the one that's laid, Jesus Christ. 
but we should be careful how we build on that foundation. We can build on it gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest. The day will disclose it. That means the day of Christ's return because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Again, a sobering thought, isn't it? It's better to participate in God's work even if we mess up than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. And J.L., for all of her foibles and all of the things that we could criticize about her ethics, is blessed here because she said, I'll join God in his work. I love what D.L. Moody said when he was being criticized about his evangelism methods. He said, I like the way that I wrongly do evangelism better than the way that you are not doing it. God's hand is behind all things. Chapter four is the human actions. Chapter five is how God is behind it all. Will you join him in his call to you? I want to close with these words. I'll tell you at the end who, it, uh, in the middle, who, who wrote it. In a declining culture, one of its characteristics is that ordinary people are unaware of what is happening. Only those who know and can read the signs of decadence are posing the questions that as yet have no answer. Mr. Average Man is comfortable in his complacency and as unconcerned as a silverfish ensconced on a carton of discarded magazines on world affairs. He's not asking any questions because his social benefits from the government give him a false security. This is his trouble and his tragedy. Modern man has become a spectator of world events, observing on his television screen without becoming involved. He watches the ominous events while he sips his beer in a comfortable chair. He does not understand that his world is on fire and that he is about to be burned with it. This was Billy Graham in his book, World of Flame, written in 1965. Graham concludes, in this cacophony of the voices of doom comes the Word of God. The Bible says that it is not too late. I do not believe we have passed the point of no return. I do not believe that all is black and hopeless. There is still time to return to the moral and spiritual principles that made the West great. There's still time for God to intervene. There's coming a time when it will be too late, and we are rapidly approaching that time. And so I ask you, not about what do we do about the social fabric? No. The question I ask you is, if you're a believer in Jesus, are you as a worshiper ready to join God in his work of making Christ known among the nations? Or will you say, we need to get a committee together to study this? Or are you going to say, that's not my problem, I'm fine right now. It's better to participate in God's work even if we mess up. 
than never to participate at all. Heavenly Father, I pray today that those who are not believers in Jesus would recognize the hour is late. Jesus, you are coming back. And that those who've never put their faith and hope in Christ would do it right now. They'd understand how great your love is for them. That you sent your son to die for them. And that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. I pray also, Lord, that you would please, please awaken your church. Not just East White Oak Bible Church, but although we do pray you would awaken us, but you would awaken your church all over the globe to recognize the lateness of the hour and that the answer does not come by politics or social action. The answer comes by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we wouldn't waste our time just sitting around analyzing it and that we wouldn't sit around excusing ourselves, but that we would get in the fight. Oh yes, there are 900 iron chariots arrayed against us. And there isn't a shield or a sword among 40,000 of us. But we have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. By your grace and strength, help us to be such men and women that will take our mallets and tent pegs whatever we have at our hand to use as worshipers for your honor and glory in making Jesus known. To the end that you would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted as King, we pray these things. Amen.